Hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. Hey, what time is it? It's time for another episode of Runtime Run Run Rundown. Let's, Let's go. go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a late Runtime Rundown <laughs> episode. Uh, this is the show where we generally talk about web development stuff. Um and I am a web developer guy, Evan, and I'm joined here by Mr. Joe Blank, uh, also a web developer guy. Joe, what's up? I am also a web developer guy. Uh, you may notice that this episode, I don't, I don't know how many people are like waiting with bated breath on a, on a Thursday evening for f- the Friday morning show to come out, I but we are, we're, we, uh, we're switching to Mondays. So we, yeah, we're, we're going to be on kind of a new schedule, but so it's, it's late this week because we didn't put one out on Friday and putting it on Monday instead, but going forward, we're, we're going to be aiming for a Monday release date. Um, yeah, what's what's new with me? Let's see. Um, I saw this week that there was some uh, some Twitter buzz. I don't I don't always like keep up with Twitter, but I, I I heard about this and I searched for it. And Google gave the first result was Twitter was that uh, Svelte Kit and maybe also Svelte. I'm not sure is is converting from TypeScript back to JavaScript. And uh, I was like, there is one person who I know is going to love this news, and it's Evan Cooper vindication baby i hope that blew out all of your speakers and headphones uh i am stoked about this and the and the answers actually call back to our episode on typescript a while back so we had an article in the typescript episode about how typescript sucks for library developers and that was the core of the argument it's actually svelte is getting rid of typescript in its next release uh, they're going back to JS and they're types they're they're type commenting or basically getting type safety with JS doc. Uh, yeah, and there is you know, <clears throat> go ahead. Uh, yeah, I I like I read all the replies. There was so man that so uh, Rich Harris, who's the creator, felt is such a smart guy. He Harris. just has he's so he's he's great. He has so many good answers to all these questions. First of all, I was surprised, although I shouldn't have been surprised, at the number of people who were like, "Wait, you're like." Svelte isn't supporting TypeScript. Like, can I, I can't write my Svelte apps in TypeScript anymore. And his comments were just like, no, that's not correct. That's not what I'm saying. And the, also the other thing people were confused about was like, wait, you're, so you're, you're not type checking in Svelte. And he was like, no, that is also incorrect. We are still type checking. We're just using JS doc to do the, to do that type checking. And they still run it through TSC. So I had no idea that this was even possible. They're actually still using, they're still getting TypeScript, uh, and this is not the article, by the way. This is just the the, the pre chat. But um, they're still getting like type safety. They're still running type checks on everything. They're just doing it with JS Docs, and you can use TypeScript in that way. I had no idea. Um, but the reason, you know, the main reason, uh, according to Rich Harris, why they're getting away from it is because there's no build step. And I was like, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, just yeah, no like build a- step. They can share. Co- they can share code somewhere, and it just works. And they don't get caught in like. It's different in my, like the compiled code, quote unquote, is the exact same as what's being written in your editor, which is, which is a huge advantage to them. Yeah. Also, 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 the complexity of types is, was overwhelming. I think he said like, they're just much faster now. They're just, they just move faster. Yeah. He was saying too, like, um, 
You made the distinction between library development and app development. People were saying, well, would you recommend this for app development too? And he had some good answers there too. He was like, no, I would recommend TypeScript as for app development because you are, you're kind of still tied to a build step anyway, because you have, you're probably using sure, some kind yeah. of JSX syntax. You're probably using some modern features that aren't supported in every browser. So you're going to be doing something with Babel or TypeScript. Um, and, ca uh, caching, assets is uh it, you know some people had suggested using es modules and and caching static assets uh is hard harder to do caching them immutably uh you know with a with a hash in them or whatever that's like easy when you have a build step but it's uh, it becomes much more difficult so he had all these uh it, i don't know it was a it was a really interesting comment thread yeah i got really excited about this um i just think it's good to see again typescript is a great tool and typescript has its place in a lot of places. What has been the bummer for me is that it has been the default answer in the next, oh, this is like, if you don't use TypeScript, you're an idiot, has been the general answer for a long time. Uh, and I always feel bummed by that. Like you don't use TypeScript, then you don't know what a production app is. Or like, you know, like, oh, t tell me you're not a real software engineer without telling me you're not a real software engineer. You know, you don't use TypeScript. It's like, F you, man. So I love to see Rich Harris, who's, you know, it, it's like a, there's a few people in the industry who would speak out against or like would have a different opinion and be able to defend it so well. And Rich Harris is one of those people. And it's cool to see this because it's at least bringing, uh, it's, it's bringing some discussion into TypeScript, which is just for like the last year, I swear has been a runaway train. And it's yeah. nice to see someone being like, Hey, there's use cases where you shouldn't use TypeScript. And then you see all these people nerd gasp and <laughs> they're like, how dare you? You know? And he's like, well, there's a good reason for it. Look at all these things that we get without TypeScript and we're still type safe, quote unquote. And they're like, well, isn't writing JS doc comments annoying? And he's like, isn't writing complex types annoying? Like there's like, it's a lateral move. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I think, um, so it was really cool to see when you sent me this, I got super psyched. I read through all of it. I read the release and then I read interviews with Rich Harris. So I went on like a whole deep dive on this. Yeah. He's, he's an interesting guy. I also like went and I tried it myself. I like went and grabbed one of my libraries and, and I like started, I, I added a TS config and I, um, I started making JS doc comments and I was like, Oh, this is an interesting way to work. It's not like it wouldn't necessarily occur to me as the first, the first option, but I, it's pretty great that you get, Type safety with no build step. I don't, and it, it was cool. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, cool. All right. So today we have something a little bit different. So we're still going to play the sound effect. Because it wouldn't be a show without that. I know. It would uh, feel wrong without the intro wrong. music. Yeah. Yeah. But we're doing something a little bit different today, which is uh, we didn't have an article. We don't, we don't have an article today, but we started talking before the show and we were like, hold on, let's, uh, let's just talk about this on the show because it's kind of an interesting topic. Um, do you want to lead into it? You want me to lead into it? Yeah, I can lead into it. And I'll also just start with another little thing. So we're going to be, uh, Joe mentioned earlier, we're going to be releasing on Mondays now. Um, and we're also going to probably be, be kind of rotating through a couple different formats of episodes just to try on a couple different hats. Um, as always, go to runtimerundown.com and leave a suggestion. If you're annoyed by it or you like one of them or you have a suggestion for a different thing that we could do, 
let us know because we, we don't get a lot of response. You know, we get great listenership and thank you so much everybody for listening, but it's not a ton of like, Hey, please do better. So runtimerundo.com has like an immediate suggestion button. You can just drop it right in there and just let us know. Um, but anyway, so what we were talking about was, you know, in the guise of, of like former job, and we're going to have to kind of walk a fine line here with what we can say and what we can't say. But the general thought is as a higher level individual contributor, some of your decisions will span years, uh, you know, maybe a year, maybe multiple years for the completion of the project and then the life cycle of the project. And uh, the question is like, so you make a decision in 2020 and then by 2023, you're still not done. And it, now it's the wrong decision. You know, how do you, how do you have technical vision and what do you do sort of along the way, maybe uh, to, to kind of mitigate these potential disasters? Like I built the wrong thing. And I've invested thousands of people hours into it. Like, you know, how do you avoid this type of stuff? So how do we think about long-term technical projects? I think we've both, um, we've both shepherded long-term projects. We've, we've both been, uh, I think the progenitors of long-term projects. So we have some things to say here, but that's it. We're just going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, without an article, just sort of free, free form fireside chat and go for it. Yeah. Me. Yeah. I, I had a lot of thoughts about this because I've seen it happen a couple times and I've seen it like, you know, I've seen it work well and I've seen it work not as well. And I've seen it like kind of like who knows when you get in the middle of it, how it's going to go. But like, I think I got thinking about this recently because Next.js has just been like in the zeitgeist lately. They've been or I should say, like, especially a couple of years ago, they, they really uh, they have ha been having a moment for a couple of years now. But what happens when a, when one technology has a moment for that long is other technologies come in and they try to get a slice of the pie. So like Remix had come in uh, a year or two ago and like really come in to a lot of the same uh, the same place that Next.js was was fitting into. And even since then, we've talked about a lot of these things, Quick and uh, and SolidJS and Astro. It's just, you know, uh, JavaScript frameworks they're a lot more prevalent now than they were 10 years ago, say. And what happens when you pick one and then a couple of years down the road, there are all these other different options, except like you've committed. Because as a, a higher level individual contributor, um, you kind of have to commit at a certain point. And, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's a thing. It's like, it's a thing that I've thought about in, in my, uh, you know, my sort of like tech journey is like, is like, okay, like I, I am a higher level contributor. I want to actually be like driving vision more. I want to be driving strategy. And how do I do that? And the way that, or one way to do that is by picking a technology and by saying, hey, we're going to like put our, put our bet behind this, this thing and, um, and see, you know, see how it goes. I've always had trouble doing that, to be honest. I, I've known other people who seem to, to do that really well. And they just kind of like, they're able to commit and, and, justify that commitment and then just like get everybody on board and everybody like moves in the same direction. I have so I have uh I think too much kind of self-doubt that I would make the wrong decision and then how do you how do you like mitigate that? I maybe that's kind of an interesting part of the conversation. Mitigating self-doubt um on that no, I mean like mitigating uh if you feel if you if you get a, a little ways into a into some kind of a committing to something technological such that like a whole team is is behind it and you're bringing that team along with you and then you kind of realize maybe i made the wrong decision how do you at that point 
switch gears or or see it to completion and then uh, do a rewrite. You know, it's like there are all these options and how do you how do you navigate? Yeah. So I think uh, the first thing to start with, with, with any big projects like this is really clearly defined exit criteria. And, you know, when you're saying like, I've made the wrong choice, implicit in that is that you know that there is a right choice or that you're not delivering against like certain goals. So there's a, the first step is sort of like, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you, are you just like re platforming because you want the new hotness or are you replatforming because there's like an aging system or are you replatforming because you need something that you can't possibly get out of your current system? Like speed. That's, that's like a common one, right? It's like performance and maintainability. You know, you're using some Ruby on rails app and actually I love Ruby on rails, but you're using some Ruby on rails app and it's like serving a Jade template or I think it's called pug now. And that's been your thing for like 10 years. And now it's starting to kind of fray at the edges, maybe because some of those things aren't as ma- well maintained because the industry moves on, and 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 maybe you can't, maybe you've reached the theoretical and practical limits of performance on that. You can only get a certain time to interactive speed out of your application because your server has like hit its speed limits. So then you might say, like, well, we have a business goal of we need to get faster because we're losing customers. So then you start there. It's like, okay, we know we need to get X amount of more, like less milliseconds out of our time to first byte or something like that. And making that, putting that on like a huge poster board of we need this much more speed. Like we have to be this fast. And working backwards from there to find like what are the possible opportunities to get faster. And I think that is, I don't see that often actually like working backwards from a very strict goal because replatforming is super expensive. And I think it happens too often. I think like, uh, I, I think too often engineers get caught up uh, by saying we need this and they say, why do you need it? Cause it's better. Like it's faster or it's easier to work with or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But oftentimes those are like, you know, maybe you read a thing, maybe you read a bunch of stuff. But it's how many of those articles or how many of those tutorials or how much of that documentation is predicated on the trap of the simple performance test, you know, and how, how much of it is really vetted for your use case. So I think going backwards from that really strong, I hate, I hate this phrase, the North Star, but it is, Mm -hmm. it's like an easy metaphor of like, we need to get to, you know, 600 milliseconds time to time to first interactive what frameworks what technologies will facilitate that and that is the only goal that you go after and how are you delivering against that goal uh so that would be my first advice is like create the north star and and don't even create it it should come to you it should Mm -hmm. be like forced you have to see it you you run up against it every day you know like there should be a really strong why before you make these huge decisions because otherwise it's like it's too easy to just switch tech because you need to switch tech. And then you're switching tech. And you're like, oh, shoot. Like, <laughs> like, this is taking a really long time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a that like if you have that, then that's almost like a that's such a clear signal that, yes, we need to invest in some kind of different technology than what we're using right now because we are feeling such pain right now. And. We need out of this hole. Like that's one thing that can happen. But that, I would say that that doesn't happen all the time. And I think there are a lot of situations where uh, people are trying to get out in front of that. People are seeing, 
oh, okay, like we're not at, in a bad place yet, but if we continue down this path, you know, like for example, you're talking about talking about performance, talking about speed. A lot of what you can, you, you know, what you can a big a big uh, technology that you can use to uh, to help with speed is like server side rendering in whatever form that is. And so I think that's why people are start really starting to reach for for these technologies like Next.js and Remix and, and all the frameworks that we're talking about because they're kind of server side rendered first. And that stuff just helps so much with with uh, all the web vitals. But if you start approaching that before you are feeling the pain, I think that's a good thing to do because because you don't want to really be butting up against the pain because then you're kind of like, we don't have any other, any other choice. We just have to solve this as fast as possible and you might not be making the best decisions. So to look out ahead of time and, and look at the landscape and see, okay, here's what is out there. Here's what people are using. Here are some pain points we might run into in the future. And if we start solving for those now, we will both get the benefit of potentially like a better developer experience now, and we won't hit those uh, those those bottlenecks in the future when it's when we actually when they actually would be uh, a problem. But that's hard. Like that's really yeah. hard to to make that. You know, you are betting. Like you're basically you are taking a chance, and you're saying there I am accepting a certain amount of risk because there's maybe a I don't know forty percent chances this is going to work. 80% chance, 20%. How do you even judge the percent? You you you, you kind of can't. I don't know. I guess so staff engineering or like um multi-team ICing, I guess is is whatever that means, whatever like the name of that role is is in part fortune telling, I guess, because you're saying like you know, you're trying to get out ahead of things. You're trying to say like, "Well, I am going to implement this new I don't know, whatever protocol because it's going to get us like X more developer hours a week or something like that. It's not, there's not a fire right now, mm-hmm. but I think I can get ahead of that fire. So there is fortune telling there. I still think there should be strong goals. Um, yeah. And I think even with, you know, you even say like, well, web vitals, server-side rendering. I mean, that's not the only answer though. That's the tough part because mm-hmm. server-side rendering comes with a server <laughs> like you know is not the only way to make something fast yep. and it, it adds a certain level of complexity uh a lot to, of to, to your infrastructure right like yeah. to, yes it adds infrastructure it adds complexity to the code that you're writing in your editor because now say you're using like react 18 or something like that and you have server components now you have to have people constantly thinking about two different runtimes for their code you know isomorphic react components is like a whole Oh no. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, server side rendering your application is like, how does it work in my server? How does it, how is my, what assets are actually getting out there? Thinking about tuning your servers and blah, blah, blah. Where are my servers? Like, you can have the fastest delivery of a byte from your server, but if it's in freaking Australia and then the person accessing your website is on the East Coast of yeah. the United States seaboard, it's going to take a really freaking long time. Yeah. to get that. And you can't necessarily cache those assets and put them on the edge. You know, right. like if you had a, a client-side rendered application or something like that. So it's not cut and dry. None of this is cut and dry. So not at all. Like yeah. you work backwards from the goal of we need, our application is slow and getting slower or our application is really difficult to work with and getting harder. Like there's less people with the subject matter expertise. Say you're running on like, all, I don't know, old, uh, what's an old language? I can't even think of one. Pascal? 
Cobol? No, maybe not that one. You have like a Java <laughs> Spring app or something like that. Okay. Actually, that's people probably know how to use that. I don't know, like a Flask app, and you have less and less Python developers available to you, yeah. more JavaScript developers, harder to hire. That brings you to like another point, though, to think about is it's not just the tech that you need to think about at this at that level. You have to think about the people, uh, and you have to think about the composition of your team. Because if you have four developers on your team, 10 developers, 100 developers, doesn't matter. They all know JavaScript and only JavaScript. And you make the choice to make like a Rust server because it's slightly faster or something like that. Yeah. You might s- screw yourself. Yes, they can learn. But like how many developers are you going to be able to hire? How many people can work on this today, tomorrow, the next day? How good are they actually going to be if they're just going to go learn this thing and it's their first experience with it? Probably mm-hmm. decent, but not as good if they're like a five-year, whatever, three-year. I don't even think Rust has been like around five years. They've been they've been in the weeds doing like Rust stuff for years or something like that. You're not getting that, right? So you have to think about like, okay, I need to... So first off, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? Second tier problem is what's the composition of people that I have and mm-hmm. the technologies that I'm thinking about choosing? What's the corpus of knowledge around those? Like, am I picking an obscure thing that two people have ever blogged about, it's going to make it really hard when yeah. you hire folks to like go learn about that thing. Uh, or not even just made- hiring folks. Like when you're, when they're trying to solve a problem, they're trying to debug a problem. They're sure. trying to search Google, like, and two people have written blo- blogs on this. That's going to be yeah. a lot harder to, it's going to be a lot with. harder. That's why we always joke about no one got fired for uh, picking react because it's just like eight trillion blog posts on it. Yep. And ChatGPT has been trained on all of them. I was going to say uh, ChatGPT is great at writing react. <laughs> yes, it is at, you know, uh, copilot and stuff. And I'm, su- I'm assuming yeah. copilot X is going to be even better. But think about the people and the the knowledge they'll need to do their job and like how effective, because you could have the most perfect technical solution, but if no one can use it, if your developers can't work in it or it takes them forever to work in it, that's, you know, its own X factor. So I think that is a second, almost first tier problem, uh, like first class citizen problem when you're thinking about big technical solutions is like really think about the composition of your team. Definitely, definitely. That's a that's a um, a thing that I have absolutely thought about, especially in interviews. And I think that there are certain questions in the past that I've that I've asked that that uh, are almost like they have uh, room for the person interviewing to talk about that. You know, you you pose them a problem, and if they if they like talk about if the first question they ask is like, well, what's the team makeup? That's a great like place to start. You know, it's not always the perfect yeah. place to start, but I think in some cases, especially for higher level ICs, um, it's a great place to start. Cause I think managers are always thinking about that, but I think higher level ICs, like if you're, if you have the right mindset, you're thinking about that, but you can also be a higher level IC that is not necessarily thinking about that. I also don't think that that's necessarily uh, wrong. That's not necessarily like a terrible thing if you're a higher level IC, because some higher level ICs, you know, I think there's a, there's kind of a, there are different types of higher level ICs. I know higher, higher level ICs who are, uh, you know, kind of working on their own thing. I think a, a lot of what we talk about is, uh, ICs who are doing a lot of mentorship. They are maybe a, a tech lead or some kind of like a team lead and they are, building the people around them. And so like, it wouldn't make sense for a, a higher level IC like that to be building something who nobody else is going to know how to work with. That just doesn't make sense. But I think there are positions where that is a thing, you know, where, where they have like, 
a big project that they build something in Rust or they build something in Go when the, no no other teams uh, are you know it, that's just like the language of the day or whatever it could could be whatever the the language is that's going to make your server faster or whatever uh and that's actually okay like that could work out for for that person or that organization probably just depends a lot on the organization um Lately, I have been hearing a lot more, though, about the, you know organizations looking for the type of IC who is going to be a mentor and who is going to be thinking about things in terms of not just how can I solve this problem, but how can I how can I as part of a team solve this problem? Because there's bus factor too. If you if you are a you know uh, whatever principal engineer and you write up something in Rust and nobody else knows how to how to maintain it, and then you go uh, I don't, you leave the company, you, you go on vacation or whatever. And, and like, how, who, what's going to happen then? <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you like, what are you going to have to hire a new person and be like, your only, my only requirement is that you know how to maintain a, this Rust server. I know. Yeah, that is super true. Um, there's also, we've, we're kind of talking abstractly about this, but we're not talking necessarily about greenfield projects, although that is like, that's cool. If you get to design a greenfield project and you're like systems designing a greenfield project from the ground up, you're lucky. Uh, it's, yeah. I've, it's rare that I've, <laughs> I've never been able to do that. I've gotten to see it at my most recent job, what that looked like. Cause I was close to that part of the project life cycle, but I wasn't there for the very, very beginning. So I got to see the choices they made and they were good to document all of that as to the, why they made those. This was, you know, this is another thing I'm going to get into is like documenting the what you do, uh, whatever your process is. We can cover that later. Like ADR process probably is a good thing to talk about. Um, but in the meantime, it's mostly what you're probably going to be doing is refactoring. You're going to like mm-hmm. be swapping the engine out while the car is still going. Um, so I think it's important to think about how you do that. And I've seen a bunch of different strategies for making big technical changes while the company's still going. Because it's mm-hmm. rare that you can just be like pause, you know, we're going to stop yeah. everything yeah. and stop making money for a long time because the engineers want to tinker with some things. Um, no, it's usually like you got to, you got to do it. So I've seen like a couple of different strategies and I can put them into two buckets. One bucket is we're going to like rebuild and cut over, I guess is like, I'm going to build this thing over here, the second system and I'm going to cut over to it. At, at like percentages and then eventually switch into it. And then the other one is you create a pit of success with the new thing. And you say like, I'm going to make it really easy for people to use the new thing. And over time, that new thing will kind of propagate and infect. And then all of a sudden you look back and you're only using the new thing and then you can get rid of the old thing. Uh, there's more buckets, but those are the two major buckets that I've seen is sort of the passive like, the passive way of I'm going to, I'm going to make this great to use and I'm going to make this the thing that I advertise and people are going to use it. Uh, you could do this with like swapping a, you know, Svelte in for React or whatever. You could say like, hey, we're enabling you to use both. Here's the new thing. Look what it gets you. Go use the new thing. And then you use both for a while and eventually, you know, a year goes by and everybody's only using Svelte. And then you can say, I'm going to go carve out all the old stuff. Uh, yeah, uh, or or even even if you're even if you're more opinionated than that, and you say the new code should be written in Svelte or whatever it is, you know, like sure, I, we're giving you the option for both, but like when you write new code, use the new thing, and like I've seen that happen, and I've seen it happen very successfully, and the old thing is just like you know, after a couple of years, you look back and you're like, 
oh man, this the I had to I had to open a file that's still written in the old framework and it's the worst. And it's, I just so yeah. wish that it had been converted. But that's the tough part. Is with that comes deletion. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think is rarest in software engineering is deleting code. Mm-hmm. It is like the rarest of things. And when I see a PR and it's just red, I'm like, I'm so happy about it because yeah. it's, it just feels so good because you just never see it. So that like the first one where you create a second system and sunset the first is always been attractive to me because first off, it's like, it's clear. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a day where we are serving traffic out of the new thing, and like we have this shiny system over here. Um, it's definitely harder though, I think, to do that because it's like a bigger investment. You need to split your teams. You know, it's like you can't really do both at the same time. You have to get different people to do different things, uh, and you're gonna direct resources over to it. Blah blah blah. But the, fir- the you know the option where you're just letting people write new stuff, and you're kind of you're putting guardrails around it, and you're hoping that that happens over time is an easier option. It just sucks though, because you have to like, it's going to take, it takes so long because people are caught in their patterns. They don't want to learn the new thing. You're going to have detractors. You're going to have people that are early adopters, but the majority of that bell curve is going to take a while to come over. And then you still have to do the work of deleting the old freaking thing. And then the long tail on projects like that is, is interminably long. That was what we were getting. We were edging on that discussion about, um, you know, companies we both worked at where it's like the long tail on some, on stuff can get enormously long and actually never end because it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's so much effort to actually kill a system. Um, it's, it just takes like a really hard push. So yeah. I don't know. I, I will say, you know, we're talking about greenfield projects and swapping the engine out in a, in a, like a running automobile or whatever. Uh, I, I think there's always this romanticized notion of a greenfield project. It's like, it's like, oh, greenfield. I would love to just build something from nothing and have it format. And that is fun. Like there is, I would, I mean, I, I'm getting a little like wistful just thinking about it. I'm like, oh, I would love to do that. But that said, there can be a lot of fun and excitement and and satisfaction to be had in swapping out the the engine of a running uh, system. You know, there it, there's a lot of, complex stuff that has to go into that there's a lot of thought that has to go into it you you are when you see it work and you're like oh this is now being supported by the new thing that is uh is really exciting to see that work and i think it's especially uh it's especially satisfying in the first example that you talked about or the first sort of situation where it's like you're not doing the sort of slow long drawn out long tail thing it's like you have a deadline you're cutting over and you're you're doing it you're committing to it and when you actually see it work um it's 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 fun. It's like, it is, there's uh, I think that doesn't get talked about as much as, as how much fun greenfield projects are. Yeah. And greenfield projects, they're, they're super rare. Um, I guess like in professional careers that, that cutover thing, or like at least um, what that feels like to finally say like, we're done or, you know, we did it. Um, that is like a hard answer sometimes because it's not always clear when you've completed a project, which I think is an important thing to look at with larger software projects that I think gets, I think gets missed a lot is clear milestoning. Like we're, you know, we can get to a phase of a project when this happens and what's our trigger for that. And, and like, what does it look like? And are we driving towards that particular milestone? So like, 
you know, you're getting you're getting everything out of Ruby on Rails, and you want to go to Next.js or something like that. You know, what's the first milestone? Is like, well, we'll go from Ruby on Rails and Pug to Ruby on Rails and React, and that at least is a lateral move. And then we'll go from, you know, we're not serving our templates out of Ruby on Rails anymore. We're serving them out of like a generic Webpack server. And then from there, it's like, okay, so now we have like a generic server and React applications. And then we say like, well, you know, we could use React Router or something like that, uh, you know, to make that move for routing. And then it feels like we have a clearer picture of what our routing looks like. Uh, and then from there, it's like, well, now I'm in, I can move to Next.js client side only and still use the router uh, if I wanted to, I guess. And then it's like, okay, now I'm fully, I'm like full hog committing to React, like, you know, Next.js and server side rendering. And I think you can make those steps along the way. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty important project planning thing that gets missed by engineers because we're not project managers. Uh, although that t- tends to be something that happens later on as you go, as you kind of mm-hmm. step into that role a little bit, because yep. no product manager, product manager is ever going to be able to know what uh, you know about the tech. So they're, they're not going to be able to draw those boundaries for you unless they're like, supremely technical and that's really rare so you you need to be the person who figures out what realistic milestones are and what those milestones should be technically uh, and draw those lines in the sand and uh, i just don't see it super often because it's i'm getting heads down and i'm just making a bunch of epics and uh you know we're doing we're we're doing the work we're at you know 15 saturation blah 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 and then you just lose the fact that you know projects need to have stepping stones because what if you have to pause it Where's a good place to stop? So, you know, building building your project in like vertical slices that once I get here, this is this could stay this way for two years and we wouldn't lose a dime. Mm-hmm. But if you build it horizontally, like you're building random parts, what if you freeze and then you're stuck or it's lost yeah. work, right? Yeah. So like trying to milestone in, if I get to this point and that's all I get to do, that itself is a win. Yeah. And, and I think that's a helpful way to look at really long-term projects. Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's kind of the answer to the question that I was asking myself earlier about how do you mitigate, you know, that's one mitigation strategy for if you're, if you are trying to switch to a completely new technology, figure out ways that are incremental that you can do it, that will continue your service or whatever it is, your system being available at its full capacity rather than saying like, okay, we're going to switch over to this new thing and it's going to take a while and it's going to be six months until we can even see the first component in production. You know, we have to do all this other work. Any way that you can avoid that is, I think is going to be the best bet. If you can take that and and chunk it into uh, phases before you get there so that you are as often as possible seeing the next phase working in production and serving, serving all that traffic. Um, it got me thinking about uh, very early in my career. It was actually even before I became a developer. Um, I saw somebody make a technical decision and intentionally, and uh, it was it was like a technical director at, at a company I worked at. And they, I was kind of like, I saw them make this decision. At the time that they made the decision, I wasn't aware that they were kind of like, okay, this is going to be what we're committing to, and this, and we're taking a bit of a leap, and we're, uh, but this is it. This is what we're committing to. And then later on, it worked out great. And it was like, yeah, that was the thing. And that was, we're so glad we made that that choice. And I think that was what planted the seed in my mind that would come back later as a higher level. I see that that made me think about that stuff. Uh, like, I think it was really good that I saw that happen uh, very early in my career, but also had the kind of like awareness to say, 
okay, the fact that they're celebrating that that went well means there's a high likelihood that they could have bet on the wrong horse. And what would have happened to the business? Who knows? You know, because that's the thing. At the end of the day, it's a business decision. Like they are technical decisions, but they are they are impactful enough that they could impact the entire business. Uh, That is a a intimidating thought, but also exciting thought. It is exciting. And I have to say, and this is probably unpopular with our engineering audience, all of your engineering decisions are business decisions. Mm-hmm. Like unless you are building, you're at a medical research facility, government funded, you know, fellow scholarship or something like that. You work for a company and that company makes money and your job in now not even three degrees of separation, one degree of separation is a platform to to facilitate the company's success, whatever that is, whether it's software as a service or you're an e-commerce company or you're whatever it is. Your job is at the end of the day to make the company better at making money. So that like I think that gets lost a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Like I want to build this because it's like, ooh, this is the cool thing, but is it really the right thing for the business? And we we can do a lot of yoga to get into that position where we're like, yep. ooh, yeah, this is great for the business. Um, but I think, you know, the better, the, the engineers who go further faster, and this might not be what you want either. So take that with a grain of salt. Like, mm-hmm. but if you want to, you know, if you're trying to get further in your career faster, the engineers that go further faster, are the ones that make their decisions first grounded in the business, uh, what, you know, customer needs first and work backwards from those and facilitate those with engineering decisions. And that might mean compromising on your engineering vision for like a perfect platform to get to the customer problem faster. Uh, and I know that's yeah. not a super popular answer, but I think it's pretty important if you want to, I don't know, go further. <laughs> make money. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't know how unpopular that's going to be. I do think there's certainly a contingent of, of engineering who is like, yeah, I read this blog post about how Zig is like the next big, big language. And like now we Elm. should convert everything. <laughs> You know, I, re- I read a really good article about Elm the other day. It was it was about actually it was about almost this exact thing. It was about a a, a company who um, basically like invested fully in Elm, and they ended up a couple of years down. They were like big in the Elm community. I think they like you know uh, they they uh, um, they submitted PRs to to Elm. So I think they helped like build Elm as a company. They were like the company known for that. And they just put out a blog post recently that was like, we're switching away from Elm and we know we've been the voice of Elm for the past, I don't even know how many years, but here's why. And they explained why they went through it and how they actually like uh, logistically went through at the company this process that we're talking about, which is like, we're moving away from Elm. Uh, they they drove consensus. So they were like, what does everybody think about this? How, we want to hear from people who use it, especially the people who are most... Uh, most going to be most affected by it. It was a really interesting article. I will, I'll, we'll have to link it, link to it. Um, uh, but, but yeah, so I I thought I was just thinking about, there is that type of engineer who's gonna, who's gonna read a blog post. It's so easy to fall into the trap of like Twitter driven development or like hacker news driven development where like you're reading about all the latest and greatest and you sort of have this, at least I can, I can get this impression sometimes where you're like, well, if all these people are talking about it, that must be what the industry is going towards. But like, it's not always what the industry is going towards. It's sometimes just people speaking really loudly and, and it makes it sound like everybody's going towards that way. Yeah. 
Um, you did mention something in there about getting consensus though. And that makes me think about um, projects I've seen go well. They get an idea or there is an idea and then they talk to people about it. The people who are actually going to be affected by it and the people who are actually going to use the technology yep. and the people who are in their day-to-day operations and are solving problems uh, that are going to be downstream of you. If you're up you know, wherever you are in your career and you're making a choice about a new language, a new platform, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, it is, it is vitally important in my opinion and not everybody's opinion, unfortunately, because I've seen this not happen where you go and town hall this, you know, put out, um, put out an RFC request for comments, put out a document or a proposal, go talk to folks, uh, get as many opinions as you can from the people who will use the thing because otherwise it's just one mind. And and as much as that might be the most brilliant mind ever, you just don't, you can't see around every corner. So the more people you bring in, the better. And also then they'll have skin in the game. And I just see it too mm-hmm. often where it's like you get, you know, you get one passionate person who's like, I'm going to do this because I think, I think it's right. And then they push out and then no one uses it or like no one wants it. And then it's, then it fails. You know, they put all this effort into it and then it fails because people didn't really want it in the first place. So I think that is like a, that's a key part of this is, and if you're already at this level, you probably already know, hopefully you already know how to do this, but it's, you know, it's, it's putting out an RFC, being humble in your proposal and saying, help me make this better. Is this the right path? Here's what I think it's going to solve. Um, you know, you could go to, if you want examples of RFCs, go to react as, you know, great examples of these. If you search their issues for RFCs next, a bunch of famous, you know, open source, uh, Libraries are going to have RFCs in their issues, and you can read what that looks like. And and you know where people make proposals and they make honest guesses about what they should do, and then get the community, whatever that community means to you, if that's inside your company, your team, your organization, whatever, to come in and and say like yes or no and why, and then get to the right thing. You know, like what is the what's the end solution that the most people are bought into because that's your best bet, and it might not be the most perfect what you wanted technically because it doesn't use the the new hotness language. Maybe it's like, oh no, we're going to write it in Java because that's the most people can use it or something. And you're like, ah, you know, shit, <laughs> like, I didn't want to <laughs> do that. But this is what everybody else thinks. And like, yes, there's some, sometimes you need to maybe be a uh, an albatross and pick something that people don't like because it's the absolute right thing. I just can't see many examples of that, to be honest. But I think this the RFC process and talking to everybody getting that buy-in is really, really, really important for the success of a project long-term. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I think I've exhausted my thoughts on, on this. Do you have any, any last thoughts before we move along? One last one, two, maybe two. One is an ADR process. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So ADR, you know, architecture decision register. Reckon- Record. I've seen actually receipts. I've seen, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah, architecture decision record is, it can be super lightweight, but what we're talking about here is I made this decision. Here's the trade-offs I considered. Here's why I picked this thing. Here's why I didn't pick this thing. Here's the date. And here's the RFC, if there was one. And that's like an entry into a log. And every decision you make when you're in that that, that process of planning do one of these entries. It's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It pays enormous dividends to to do this. Even like in your day-to-day, this is like a side note, even in your day-to-day development, I chose 
to not use a state management library. I chose context for this part of our, like our application for these reasons. Cause I guarantee in a month, someone's going to be like, you know, let's add Zustand. And then you're like, oh crap, let's go to the ADR. You say, well, maybe we didn't need that, you know? And here's, <clears throat> here's why, sorry, my voice said something weird, but I think that's super important on bigger projects, <clears throat> early days. Why did you choose the tech you chose? That might be in your brain somewhere, but you should write it down because I, you know, people are going to come back and build the same freaking thing again. Yeah, You know, as I literally saw this at work, someone's building the same thing and they use all the old RFCs and ADRs and they're like, oh, I love these decisions. Actually, here's what I'm going to do different because I read what you said and I see where you're at now and you, yeah. and you know, it's not great, right? There, here's a big problem that, that I exposed uh, in your, in where you are today versus what you promised in the early documents. And then they made it, they made a decision to change one piece of a stack. And yeah. that's like, I was like, Oh, this is, this is exactly how what's supposed to happen. Yes. That's, I think I've talked about this once before, but yes, that that's like the unseen, um, the, the, the unseen benefit I think of, of an ADR is, is like the, the, the sort of obvious advantage of having a, an ADR is like, okay, like here's why we made this decision. So like when somebody's asking questions about like, oh, why did we chose this, choose this path? You can point back to why, why you chose it. The unseen or I guess like lesser seen advantage is when somebody says, oh, I want to, I want to make this, uh, I want to change this thing. And then somebody else says, oh, here's why we didn't go with that in the first place. And then you could say, oh, except that things have changed now. And now it actually makes sense to, to go with this thing that we didn't choose the first time because we can look back at the ADR and say X, Y, and Z have changed, which I think is exactly what you're talking about. And uh, yes, yeah, that's it, it's it's just I forget, I think, sometimes how beneficial those can be. Yeah, that's all I have. I think we could probably talk ad nauseum about this for like 100 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all right. well, we still, even though it's a different format, we're still going to have the, because <laughs> we didn't talk about an article, we're going to have the yep. very basics of asking simple questions like, what are you learning? What are you learning? Well, let's see. I am learning something that I was like, Evan's going to be, Evan's going to laugh when I tell him what I'm learning because uh, it's dangerously close to the bloom filter. It's not, it's not all that close, but uh, I've been learning more about bitwise operations in JavaScript. Come on. I know. <laughs> and the reason is because it's it's like it's like a little bit of a blind spot for me. It's something I have never felt comfortable. Whenever I see like the single ampersand or the single pipe in JavaScript, I'm like, ooh, I get a little like, oh, I don't know. I, oh, what my brain like short circuits a little bit. And I'm like, what is what does that mean again? How do I so uh so anyway, so I, I spent I just took some time and I was like, I want to like learn more. I want to play around with bitwise operations and get a little bit more comfortable with them. And I think that probably like the, the seed that got planted was this Primogen video that I might've mentioned in the past, but he talks about optimizing this uh, advent of code algorithm. Uh, and so he gets, he gets his kind of like most optimal version, but then he crowdsources and somebody uh, optimizes it with using bitwise operators because the way that this algorithm is structured is such that like you can represent this array, it's a short enough array that you can represent it with a, uh, with like a binary, a, a, a number in binary. Cause if you have a number in binary, like, um, I'm going to, my math is going to be wrong right now, but if you have like a 31 in binary, that's like, uh, what zero, zero, uh, my math is definitely going to be wrong, but 
no, 32 would be zero, 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 one or whatever. So, so like if you think about those zeros and ones as slots in an array that are true and false, like you can get a lot of mileage out of that. So anyway, I was like, how am I going to learn about this stuff? So I was, I was like looking up, uh, like interview questions and stuff like there's a, there's a bunch of leak code questions that are binary, uh, like they're related to binary. So I was like, oh, that's a, that'll be a good place to start. And, uh, yeah, I learned a bunch. I well, certainly wouldn't call myself an expert, but I definitely feel more comfortable thinking in this sort of different like mindset of like, okay, like if I'm thinking about these numbers as binary, it's like you, it just gives you a, a different data structure to use, I think. Well, that's pretty cool. I, that is also a blind spot for me because I've, I can't think of a lot of time I've ever needed one. Uh, so yeah, same. Yeah, I know that there are reasons and people write them every day and it's a feature of the language. I have definitely, that's a blind spot for me. So that's pretty cool. You know, I guess I would I also thinking, say like, uh, pretty cool is kind of strong, kind of a strong word for that. I wouldn't say it's pretty cool, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I, I would also say if I ever saw it on a code review, I'd be like, mm, mm, do we really mm, need to, do we really need to go here? Like, uh, was this a typo? But, yeah. Did you forget an ampersand? Um, yeah, I also think we should make T-shirts that just say "I heart bloom filters." Um, oh, that's good. Runtime rundown. We heart, I heart bloom, bloom filters. Bloom filters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. So I am learning less exotic, far less exotic. Uh, but the I'm not sure, sure if you're familiar with the Playwright testing framework. It's an end-to-end -end testing oh, yeah. framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been learning more Playwright lately. Uh, nice. So you know, there's a lot of lot of Players in the game of end-to-end -end testing, uh, integration testing, whatever you want to call it. I know that's a bugaboo in the industry, but browser-based testing, right? So we'd say that. Um, and there's like Puppeteer and Cypress is a big player. Playwright is sort of newer and it's the same folks who wrote Puppeteer. It's the same core team. Um, and Playwright has been uh, really, really nice. I've been using Playwright now for a little while. And really enjoy Playwright, uh, just kind of like exploring more about what you can do with Playwright, some of the ancillary tech that they have. One of the great things that I love about Playwright, and I wish they would pay me for this, but they won't, is uh, traces. So the traces that they generate when a test fails are really nice. And they give you this little trace viewer, and you just it's like super easy to drop a zip file into the trace viewer. Uh, and it's, you know, you can do them in slow-mo and do all sorts of cool stuff there. So um I really like that. You can also debug their tests really easily, which is cool. So I've enjoyed working with Playwright, but uh, just spending a little bit more time figuring out, um, yeah, how to use it better. That's all. Nice. I got to explore Playwright because I've used Cypress a bunch, and I would say the best thing Cypress has going for it is its debugging. Like it's it's just uh, it's got a top notch debugging because you can step through the whole the whole test in a yep. browser. You know, you can like get to any state that your app was in at that state in the test anyway. Uh, yeah, I got to play around with Playwright. Yeah, I mean, realistically, write as few of these tests as you can. So, so. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but if you do, the Playwright is a great option. That's right, yep. Yeah. All right, well, we've reached that time. Time to sail away on the Good News Cruise. Yes. <laughs> always love the tweet tweet it's the yeah. best part um, man 
this is this is I mean this is good news, but not my it's not my good news of the day. But I was just thinking about how excited I am about Tears of the Kingdom. I don't know if you've seen the new Legend of Zelda trailer yet. Yes, it's awesome. I'm so excited. We are mere weeks away now. Three yep. weeks, I think. Ah, four weeks, whatever. Um, so excited. But that is not our good news for today. That is no. good news. It is. That Tears what is of your Kingdom good news? Is my good news is, is good that um, I've talked a little bit about EV battery recycling and stuff like that. Um, but so this was very recent, I think as of early, um, like second week in April in Covington, Georgia, the largest EV battery recycling plant has now opened in the U S and they can, uh, it's a 30,000 ton per year recycling facility for batteries and battery scrap. And they just switched on the disassembly line for the very first time. Um, and there's a inside the the actual disassembly line, it's a Massachusetts-based startup. Uh, and, you know, we are from Massachusetts. Is that is that scoped out enough for you to not be afraid of doxing that we're from Massachusetts? <laughs> well, it's hyper-local and it's kind of my area. So I don't really like you stepping on my good news toes. But <sighs> I'll let this one slide. Crap. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, it's a Massachusetts-based startup uh, that will be harvesting lithium, carbonate, cobalt, uh, you know, manganese, and other battery minerals, right? And selling them back to the market. Um which would limit how much rare earth metal mining we have to do, which is horrible for the environment. Uh, so this is pretty cool because this location can take 70,000 electric vehicles worth of batteries. Well, it, you know, they, they can handle a lot uh, and sell it back to maybe make new batteries, which is really, really cool. So I want to see more and more of this come online. Um, I think the better we can get at keeping batteries and battery components cycled, recycled, and upcycled back into the market, the, the more useful EVs will be uh, long-term. So yeah, that's always been a blocker. It's like, what do we do with the batteries? You just sit in a landfill somewhere. Like, nope. Well, we can do something about it. So I thought that was pretty nice. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's great. Great news. Uh, my good news is not very environmentally related. Uh, my good news is that ice cream is apparently good for you. Uh, I, re- <laughs> I read this article. I, well, I'll be honest. I read the headline of this article that said, ice cream is good for you. <laughs> I read the headline of the article. I didn't want any more information. Well, so. that's the thing. I didn't continue the article because I didn't want any more. I said, that's enough for me. And, uh, and that's it. Cause I eat ice cream. I don't know if you know this about me. I'll let you in on a little, little secret, little insight into my life. I eat ice cream every night of the year, 365 days a year. I almost said 365 days a week. Yeah. I eat ice cream almost every day. Uh, it's like wow. my- Like regular my full dairy fat ice cream? Or do oh, you, are yeah. you eating the, like the Halo Trader Joe's. Oh, man. No, no, no. The, it is. It's like, I looked at how many calories are in this, this type of ice cream. That I, and I was like, it's basically double any other ice cream. And I was like, man, that's a lot. I don't have like a ton of it. But, uh, but yeah. For those so of you this- who can't see Joe, Joe- <laughs> I'll put it this way. Joe doesn't look like a man who eats ice cream every day. <laughs> Just fit guy. This well, is stunning information. How do you out eat this ha- or outwork this habit? Go read this headline and you'll have all the answers you need. Ice cream is good for you. Yeah, uh, why do you read more of the article, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so the article goes it goes into something about uh, it's specifically around like diabetic. It was like if uh, a half a cup of ice cream a day was somehow related to uh, w- uh like a, a a 
decrease it. I don't, I'm not, I'm going to get it wrong because literally I was like, I don't want to know anymore other than this is justifying my nightly ice cream habit. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, I thought it was good news. Um, That's great news. I'm going to go ahead ice cream right now. That's amazing. Uh, Okay, well, that brings us to the end, I think, on that great news, which is eat as much ice cream as you want every single day. Joe Boyle said he can. Uh, And yeah, so new format, I guess, a little bit more free form. Doesn't mean we're not going to keep doing articles in in the sort of same format we've always done, but we're just experimenting a little bit. So like I said at the top, runtimerundown.com, let us know with a suggestion or comment on the episode, what you thought, and if uh, you want to see something different, and we'll take feedback we take direct feedback well just not enough people are giving it to us so feel free to jump in there you can chat right to us that's right actually i have i again we do this right before the the like the exit and it's the worst because it's like i personally i have a personal like shout out for somebody and (laughs) and like i this person is not gonna probably not gonna listen to this episode all the way through but uh i was talking to Susie curran who we both know and uh just she's so great uh so i was I was talking to her about about like podcasts and stuff, and she was telling me that she listens to this podcast. So shout out to Susie. Um, I was also talking to her about some other podcasts, and she was like, "You listen to a lot of podcasts," and I was like, "I never really thought about how many podcasts I listen to. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I do as uh, well. It's kind of like one of my main content <laughs> injection formats. Yeah, um, that's super cool to hear from Susie. Susie was probably like the first person who got on and helped with awesome learning from the outside. Yeah, that's what I was uh, thinking about. Yeah, and that was just like such a awesome learning was an education platform we built in house at Wayfair. Ended up sunsetting it, but it was a great it was a great time, a really formative years. And Susie yep. was so involved early, and um, that was really I never forget that that was really really nice because everybody else was involved because they had like a lot of skin in the game, or as like you folks on platforms or, or front end whatever it was called at the time, and you had a vested interest. And Susie was like, "I'm gonna do this out of the goodness of my heart," which is really yeah. cool. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I hope Susie hears this because uh, hello, Susie's. You're awesome. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All okay, right. Go. So y- five stars. Give us five stars. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Runtimerundown.com. And uh, yeah, we've been talking about maybe some improvements we'll be making to the to the website soon too. So hopefully yeah. you'll see that. See that hopefully coming. you'll see it. You'll see us uh, next Monday, uh, you know, every Monday now. That's right. All right. Uh, Have a good week, everybody. Talk to you later. Bye.